Good morning, everyone. It's my joy to be with you this morning, to worship with you this morning, and now definitely to open God's Word for you. Just a quick word, though, as we look ahead to next week. I really encourage you, please, do everything you can to be with us next week. Um, I'm really, really looking forward to this baptism service. It'll be a wonderful, wonderful time for us to be reminded of the gospel, right? To be reminded that our God is a God who saves. Our God is a God who has made a perfect and complete way of salvation. And our God is a God who is actively at work, right? We are, we're going to hear from at least four people, potentially five. Still got to do one more interview. But uh, we've got uh, at least four people who are going to be testifying of how they were dead in their sins. And God opened their eyes to see their sins, to see their need for a Savior, and brought them to the place where they put their full and complete trust in Jesus as their Savior. So it should be a wonderfully encouraging day. Obviously, it's a good time for us as a family in Christ, too, to rejoice with those who rejoice celebrate with those being baptized um, and also be praying be praying because we're hoping that a number of visitors will come uh, a number of people who aren't saved and um, okay have you been hearing me do I need to say that all again okay I'm louder now but did you hear me at least you did hear me Stasha you heard me okay good wonderful come next weekend it should be wonderful um, and we're just so thankful for how God is at work. Uh, he's at work right here, right here, right now. Um, and what a, what a privilege to be a part of it. Okay, we are working our way through the Gospel of Mark, section by section. And we will be in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20 today. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. And last week, we saw Jesus and his disciples crossing over the Sea of Galilee in a small group of boats and an especially severe, fierce storm came up and threatened to sink the boats. And the disciples were panicking. But Jesus commanded the wind and the sea to be calm. And in a moment, at his command, all was calm, right? Even the wind and the sea obey him. And here in the portion of scripture we're looking at today, this same trip across the Sea of Galilee comes to an end. We see in Mark chapter 5 verse 1 it says, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And the country of the Gerasenes would be a majority non-Jewish a pagan area, part of a larger area called the Decapolis. Continuing on down here now in verse 2. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately they met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. So as soon as they arrive on the opposite shore, they're met by this demonized man. You might remember uh, previously when we were talking about um, people who were afflicted by demons in the Gospel of Mark, that this is an important distinction, right? 
The Bible doesn't talk of demon possession. That is widely used language, but the Bible doesn't speak of demon possession. Demons do not own anybody. They may strongly influence people, they may strongly, horribly afflict people, but they do not possess and own anyone. So they're met here by this demonized man, by this man afflicted, as we'll see, not just by one demon, but by demons. He's suffering from their torment and their controlling influence. And verse 3 tells us, he lived among the tombs. Okay, he lived among the tombs, meaning he lived in a rocky, hilly region where there were a number of natural caves that were used for burying people. Tombs. He's basically living in a graveyard, totally isolated and alone. Totally alone, away from his friends, away from his family, away from any contact, really, with other people. He's in this desolate place where no one else lives, a place considered to be unclean, even. And it seems he'd been driven out there, unwelcome to live among others because of the wild behavior he exhibited under the influence of these demons who were afflicting him. Verse 3 tells us, no one could bind him anymore, right? Anymore. So clearly for a time they had. For a time they had bound him. For a time they had tied him up and, and sought to control him. And it says here, no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had been bound with shackles and chains, but he had wrenched the chains apart. He broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. And now, night and day among the tombs, verse 5, night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. This man's situation is desperate. Desperate. The people of the town had tried to tie him up to limit the harm he might bring to them and to, to himself. They tried many times, but it didn't work. Even chains didn't work. There was a wild tenacity about him and a supernatural strength, a strikingly supernatural strength that allowed him to just break these shackles in pieces, we read here. And he broke free again and again. And now he's been driven out into these desolate places, these burial grounds, wandering about among the tombs, crying out, howling like a wolf, not even really living as a man, living as a wild animal, and, and tormenting himself, cutting himself with stones. And as we come to see later in this passage, he's also naked, or close to naked realize that when we see the amazement that comes later when people see him clothed. So he's, he's, he's naked and his behavior is the sort that would result in people obviously keeping their distance from him as much as they can. Both because 
of just out and out strangeness, right? This, this guy's behavior is bizarre, it's weird. I don't know what to do with it. And also because he's unpredictable and he's freakishly strong, right? So unpredictability plus freakish strength, okay, that, that's dangerous. Let me stay away. Let me, let me keep my distance. So this man's living very, very lonely existence. Probably very malnourished, just scavenging around, finding what he can eat. Naked, probably filthy, filthy, dirty, smelly, and cutting himself and inflicting pain on himself. He's probably someone, if we're honest with ourselves, we would keep significant distance from, right? If he was living in the fields near us, we would not walk through those fields. We would keep our distance. We wouldn't feel safe with him and we wouldn't know what to do with him. Verse 6 tells us, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. So the man runs up to Jesus from afar, but then he falls down before him in submission. And maybe the demon's initial impulse was to attack. Maybe that's why he was running at Jesus. But even if that was the case, even if their first thought was to be on the offensive, by the time the man gets near to Jesus, it's clear that the demons have realized they've got no chance and they've put their tail between their legs. Like a dog showing submission to a more powerful dog when they just lie on their backs and put their legs up in the air and just, just have this desperate look on their face. Please leave me alone. This man just drops to his knees before Jesus in submission and pleading. And the demons within him speak, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. See, the demons know exactly who Jesus is. They know exactly who he is. And they know he's not to be messed with. He is the son of the most high God. And this particular term doesn't just tell us of Jesus' deity, it also emphasizes his power, his absolute supremacy, his total and complete authority over anything and everything else. He is the most high. The most high. Some scholars wonder here if the demons are trying to defend themselves by naming Jesus. See, in those days, there was a widespread mindset. And in fact, you still see some people uh, who, who think this way today. This, this mindset that being able to identify and name a spiritual being 
gives you some level of power in an exchange that you might have with that being. And perhaps that's possible. Perhaps that these perhaps it's possible that these demons are trying anything desperately in their panic. What can we do to get an upper hand here? What can we do to 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 have some hope in this exchange? But they're grasping at straws, right? There's nothing substantive in it. And even if that was the case, they don't have that confidence or that hope for very long at all. Because in the same breath that they, that they identify Jesus, in the same breath that they identify Jesus, they are already pleading with him for mercy. It's almost like this. I know who you are. You are the most high God. So therefore, I obviously have absolutely no chance in challenging you. So let me just roll over and beg for mercy. What am I I doing? I can't engage you. There's no battle here. There's no fight. I have no hope. Please. Just show me mercy. And how desperate, how desperate must these demons have been that they actually plead for mercy in God's name. Demons pleading for mercy in God's name. They recognize clearly that there's no other grounds that would carry any weight because here they're faced with the Son of the Most High God himself verse 9 tells us and Jesus asked him what is your name he replied my name is Legion for we are many and he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country Uh, Legion was a grouping of 5,600 Roman soldiers And that is not to say necessarily that there was exactly that number of demons within this man. But there were many, many. As we'll see shortly, there were at least 2,000 of these demons within him. Think about that. 2,000 demons inside you. And whatever beliefs there may have been in those days, right? about needing names of individual demons in order to have power over them and to be able to exorcise them and cast them out of people. Jesus clearly has no such need. These demons don't give Jesus their names. They talk of themselves as a collective. But 2,000 or more demons recognize that Jesus can send them wherever he wills And so they they plead. They plead with him not to send them out of the country. It's not clear why they were so desperate to stay in the area, but they were, and they begged Jesus to let them stay. And surprisingly, he does grant that request. But he may leave them in that country, in that area, but he will not. He will not leave these demons inside the man they have been tormenting. 
they must leave him. Verse 11. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they, that's the demons, they begged him saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. And now this passage definitely raises lots of questions for us. And lots of questions come to mind here, right? Why, why do these demons need, if they need, or at the very least they, they, they strongly want, right, to be inside another embodied living being? Why, why is that their request? Why, why is there that motivation? Oh, if we're going to leave this man's body, we want to be in another body. How about those pigs? Why? I, I don't know. There's various theories that different scholars have, but all of them are, are conjecture, right? Maybe they're based on, on ideas that people at the time had, but they're not based on anything that we actually see in Scripture. Okay? We don't have a clear indication from Scripture why this might have been, why it is the request they make. We just know that it is the request that they make. Verse 13. So he, that's Jesus, gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. Again, very strange, right? Lots of questions come to mind. What, what is going on here? Why? Would the demons ask, plead to enter the pigs if they were just going to drive those pigs to their death only moments later? That's how they affected, affect and influence those pigs. They enter them and then just out of nowhere, all these pigs suddenly have this desire to just run off this, this steep hill, this cliff face and drown. Bizarre. The text doesn't tell us why, again, and we can't know for sure, but we do see a few things in these verses. We see that these demons clearly bent on destruction of others. Having lost the opportunity to torment the man they'd been afflicting before, they now drive these pigs to their death. And in so doing, they're not only killing these pigs, but they're also bringing hardship to the owners of the pigs by robbing them of a significant source of income. We see here also the sheer number of demons. Uh, we see here the sheer number of demons that had been tormenting the man, right? This is how we know that there were at least 2,000 of them. As they go out, and at least one enters each pig, right? About 2,000 pigs go and stampede down into the water. And with that, right, we get a better idea of just how awful this poor man's experience must have been. 2,000 or more demons. What must it have been like, right? Because that's... That's not just extensive power, extensive affliction. I'm sure these 2,000 demons are not always all wanting the same thing. 
talk about feeling conflicting pressures in, within you, right? Being pulled this way and pushed that way and ganged up on and bullied. And we see more here of just how powerful and authoritative Jesus was. Did you notice? The demons, in getting cast out, in being expelled out of this man, they ask for permission. Permission to go into the pigs. They know. They know Jesus' power and authority. In verse 14, we see the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. They were afraid. This reminds us of our passage last week, doesn't it? Jesus accomplishes an amazing and very good thing. But in so doing, he also makes it very evident that he has power beyond anything anyone there has ever seen or imagined. And they're afraid. They're afraid. Like the illustration I used last week, right? You're facing a pack of hyenas. And the next thing, a lion next to you roars and the hyenas run away. Good thing or not, right? Am I actually in a better situation now that I'm faced with this more powerful creature right here beside me? Or has my situation just got worse? They're afraid. This demonized man was notorious. They had tried everything to control him. Again and again, he had broken even shackles and chains. Supernatural strength, clearly supernatural strength. And they'd heard or at least heard, they'd seen or at least heard of his self-mutilation and his howling and animal-like behavior. But now here he is, sitting calmly, Clothed and in his right mind. Who, who is this that can not only subdue this wild, powerful, crazy man, but also restore him to his sanity? Whoever he is, he has power we have no idea about. Verse 16. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. They can't deny Jesus' power. It's very evident. But instead of embracing him in faith, instead of seeing as the demons recognize that this is the son of the most high God, instead of submitting to him and embracing him in faith, they push him away. It's interesting and sad that our passage makes it clear that those who had seen it 
So he should describe to them what had happened to, first of all, the demon-possessed man, and second of all, to the pigs. So these people are told about both. They hear about the power of Jesus and his kindness and goodness to rescue and restore this man who had been so tormented, so afflicted for so long. And they hear of the 2,000 pigs being lost. They hear about both. And in hearing about both and deciding, do we want to, we want to keep this man here with us? Who rescued and restored this man who was so tormented and afflicted? Do we want to keep him? Or do we want to risk the possibility of more financial loss? We want to risk the, 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 this man's power possibly being used in some ways we don't like. And they make their choice and ask him to leave. Ask him to leave. And one thing that is clear here, right? And the Bible is always very, very clear on this. Is the incredible value of human life. Right? There is definitely, there's an ethical question if you look at all this and you think, yo, imagine being the owner of all those pigs and, and losing all that money and, you know, trying to think through like, well, they, they, you know, is that okay? Is it alright that that happened? And it's striking that, that Mark doesn't address that at all. Right? He doesn't address it at all because from Mark's perspective, it's obvious how we should be thinking about this account. Just There should just be awe and amazement and rejoicing at what Jesus has done for this man, right? at this life that has been rescued and restored. Verse 18, and he, that's Jesus, was getting into the boat, now having been asked to, left, to leave, right? He was getting into the boat, and the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Everyone marveled. Now, why could he not go with Jesus? Jesus is calling followers to, to come and follow him wherever he goes. Why does he not permit this man to follow him? And why do we see Jesus give this man the freedom to go and share widely what he's done for him when we've seen again and again Jesus tell other people not to share the miracles he's done for them. Well, first of all, remember this is Gentile territory. They've crossed over the Sea of Galilee. They're not in Israel. This is Gentile territory. So there's no threat then of, of um, as this man goes and spreads what Jesus has done for him, there's no threat of upsetting the religious leaders and, 
and, and hastening the time when Jesus is going to be crucified, right? As we've talked about before, Jesus had to be very strategic. He's still going to preach. He's still going to do his miracles. But there's a lot of work for him to do. There's a lot of ground for him to cover. And so even as he's being bold and unashamed of his message, he's also being careful not to upset the religious leaders so much, so quickly, that momentum builds and he's not able to finish preaching and teaching and training up his apostles. A second thing we can say is that Jesus has been asked to leave this area. Okay? So Jesus came to that area to preach and to teach. So now he's asking this man to be a light in a dark place. He's asking this man to share the good news of Jesus in that area. There's a need for someone to stay and to tell others about Jesus and his mission. Now, a few things for us to highlight from this incredible story. First of all, Jesus is far, far more powerful than demonic powers. We've already seen in Mark that Jesus has power and authority over demons. But people were amazed when Jesus was casting out one demon. Telling one demon to be quiet and leave the man. Now there's 2,000 plus demons in this man. And what, again, what do we see, right? There's absolutely no battle here. There's no struggle. Jesus simply commands the demons and they leave. Just like we saw with the fierce storm at sea, right? Even the wind and the sea obeys him. Even a legion of demons obey him. 2,000 plus to one, no problem. And of course, as, as we already mentioned, as the demons leave the man, they're even asking for permission from Jesus to enter the pigs. Jesus is far more powerful than demonic beings. Brothers and sisters, you do not need to know demon names. You don't need to know exorcism rituals. You don't need to know spells or rituals. You don't need charms. You don't need the help of your ancestors or symbols. When it comes to demonic powers, you just need Jesus. Pray. Jesus has all the authority to deal with demonic powers. All the power. Secondly, Jesus is able to rescue and restore anyone. Jesus is able to rescue and restore anyone. This man's situation seemed so utterly hopeless. Right? Even just restraining him and keeping him from doing further harm to others seemed impossible. And yet here he is, not just restrained, but calmly sitting, right? which is a picture 
When you, when you see people sitting around Jesus in the, in the Gospel of Mark, it's symbolic of them learning from Him, following Him, having faith in Him. There He is, sitting, clothed, in His right mind. Now, don't hear me wrong here, right? When I say that Jesus can rescue and restore anyone, Obviously, this is, an, this is an account where we're looking at, at demonization, demonic affliction. And in these examples I'm about to give, I'm not saying that every time someone's life is gripped by something life-dominating, right? Uh, that that means that they are demonized. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that the extremity of this man's situation... And the total transformation we see here highlights for us both the immensity, the immensity of Jesus' power and also Jesus' wonderful compassion. It highlights Jesus' ability to face even the strongest of rebellious powers, even the most seemingly hopeless of situations, to overcome them. Completely. We live in a fallen world, brothers and sisters. A world that is broken by sin. And sin's effects are everywhere. Right? Mankind is made in God's image. But because of sin, because of the fall, that image is marred and disfigured. Right? There's many, many things in this world that twist us and distort us keep us from living and being who God created us to be. C.S. Lewis, famous author and Christian apologist, described his life before his salvation like this. He was a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatred. My name was Legion. Far from just having a pure and unified purpose, desires and ambitions and fears and lusts pulling him this way and that. Instead of loving and living for what we should, we find ourselves consumed by lusts and physical desires, Often, for honest, acting more like animals than reflecting the image of our Creator. Some of us, I'm sure, feel crippled by how quickly and powerfully we lose our tempers and find ourselves out of control. Right? Look back at it and just feel deeply ashamed. What? What just happened? Did I really throw a, fi- a frying pan across the room? Did I, I really punch through a door? What am I doing? Some of us are sickened by the power that pornography has over us, as if we're its slave. Some of us have been tormented and afflicted, not by demons perhaps, but by wicked, sinful men and women who sexually or physically abused us. 
We've been scarred by traumatic experiences. Some of us feel absolutely paralyzed by our insecurities or by our anxiety, by depression. Sometimes we feel unable to get out of bed and just face life. And some of us, instead of ruling over creation as God intended, find ourselves instead ruled by it, controlled by alcohol or drugs. We've seen a lot of emphasis in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark on repentance, right? On our responsibility to turn away from our rebellion against God, to turn away from rebelling against Him, to instead obeying Him and following Him. We've seen a lot of emphasis on our responsibility to turn away from sin and to follow Jesus, to, to love Jesus, not to love sin. And that remains massive. 100%, don't hear me saying anything else. We are sinners. We must fight our sin. We must take responsibility from our sin. for our sin. We must turn from our sin. We must follow and obey Christ. But it is also appropriate, biblically, to think of ourselves as sufferers in this fallen, broken world. Not only sufferers, right? Not only sufferers, as if we're just victims who um, are not also sinners who are responsible for our desires and choices. But we are sufferers too. We're sinners and sufferers. We're sinners and we are people who are afflicted and affected by the brokenness of this world. And sometimes it can feel hopeless. Sometimes our situations can seem absolutely beyond us. So my brothers and sisters, hear me, right? Hear me. Jesus can rescue and restore anyone. Jesus can rescue and restore anyone. Can you imagine encountering someone whose situation seemed more hopeless than this man, this demonized man? And I'm not saying here, right? I'm not saying that Jesus will always restore you to your right mind, so to speak, in a moment, like he did with this man. I'm not saying that the answer to all your struggles is going to be as simple as a prayer of deliverance. And voila! Done. It doesn't mean the road will be easy or that Jesus will complete his work of restoration in your life on your timetable. Right? But it does mean that he is fully, fully able to do it. He's merciful and kind and gracious, and we can go to him for the help we need. Christians have every reason to have hope. If you're feeling hopeless, you're not seeing Jesus for who he is. If you're feeling hopeless, you're not seeing Jesus for who he is. He will restore us. Even if not fully in this life, 
right? We know that a new heavens and a new earth await us. Where Jesus is king and where under his rule there is no sin or sadness. Where all our desires and loves will be what they should be. Where all our thinking and feeling will be what it should be. All our relationships will be what they should be. The time is coming when we will be all that God intended us to be. Totally, completely reflecting the image of our God. Conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. It's wonderful news, isn't it? Don't forget it. Don't forget it. And thirdly, right? Tell others. (laughs) Tell others how much Jesus has done for you, right? That should be our response, shouldn't it? We should want Jesus to be magnified for what he has done for us, to be glorified. We want to honor him and thank him and give him the praise. We want people, as we see in this passage, to marvel, to marvel at what Jesus has done. And we have something incredible to pass on to others too, right? We have the good news, the very best of news. We have met Jesus and we know firsthand that he forgives sins and transforms lives. We know firsthand that he rescues and restores. He's rescued us. He's changing us. And he will complete the work he's begun. And he can and will restore all, rescue and restore all who put their faith in him. Do you have have a co-worker who's depressed and down in the dumps? Do you have a family member who's always angry? Do you know somebody who's struggling with addiction to alcohol? Do you know people who are just clearly living as if just life has no taste? There's nothing to live for. Tell them about Jesus. Tell them about Jesus and all he has done for you. Verse 19 again. Go home to your friends. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And the man went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Let's do the same. Amen.